Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Owen Hammonds is a design principal at IBM here in Austin, where his job focuses on employee experience design. As early as high school, he found himself designing for others. And after an eight-year stint in the U.S. Army, he picked up where he left off and studied design in college. The jobs he has had since have all challenged him and have added to his skill set in different ways. He talks a lot about his path to the success he has found today and how important it is for designers to have humility in their work. We delve into the subject of design thinking and all the ways that framework can be adapted to people's careers and everyday life. Owen has also been sharing his knowledge as a teacher for the last 15 years and is married to accomplished artist and teacher Hollis Hammonds. Here is Owen. Thanks for being on my podcast, Owen. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I've been trying to make this happen for quite a while. It's been a little bit. I know. I don't know how long we've known each other, but we've had many short conversations at dozens of different art openings, I think, <laughs> so far. But I've always been curious to learn more about you. On your Instagram account, you're saying that you're a designer, an advocate, and an educator. I'm just wondering if you could like maybe elaborate on those a little bit. Yeah. So I am a practicing designer. Uh, that's what I went to school for. And um, I've been practicing for about 20 plus years now. It's ingrained in me. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that I love and it's a passion. As an advocate, I like to advocate for others, uh, mainly in within the, the design practice. Those who are up and coming or things that are community oriented as far as like design and how design can impact the community as well too, mm-hmm. um, whether within the professional community or even in the everyday community yeah. as well. As an educator, I've been teaching for about 15 years now. Yeah. And which is weird because it's one of those things that I never thought I would ever do. Yeah. But it's one of those things I really, really enjoy. And it's probably one of those things that, I love my job, but like I, I find myself sometimes, you know, like, oh, it's five o'clock. I got to go. I got to go because I really want to go and teach yeah. the class because um, I learn just as much as they do. 
because I want to make sure that I can answer all the questions in the class. And mm. um, it's it's a really and it's really exciting to teach uh, where I teach at, which is Austin Community College, because a lot of those students are they're different than a four year university students. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're usually they want to be there. They they really want to like support themselves and you know get to the next level um, within their career and so they're they typically are you know not knocking for your university students but they're they're usually are pretty dedicated to attending class and asking questions and asking how they can like get better at things yeah than i've experienced in teaching at four-year universities and maybe a bigger age range too oh absolutely Um, i've had students that are still in high school uh, so they're taking design courses as an AP or something like that, or an advanced course, all the way to uh, people who are starting their second career. Oh yeah, as well too. Um, so it's it's a huge range, which makes the classes even more interesting because it's it's sometimes it's it's not just teaching the class; it's handling the class dynamics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as well. And then I imagine even if there's older people in the class, they could even almost be like in some way mentors or different a different energy or influence for the younger students too. Yeah. It, I think it, it can actually go both ways. Okay. Um, it's not just the, you know, elder in the class, you know, supporting or teaching the, the younger up and coming um, students. But the other way around is, you know, I see a lot of the younger students teaching uh, a lot of the um, uh, older students, some computer technologies or different things like mm. that. Oh, yeah. Um, so, it, like, it goes both ways, which is really, really interesting, which makes the class even more interesting to see that dynamic happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it also is a it's a big part of design and um, of staying humble, mm-hmm. uh, not bringing an ego into the practice, which actually, I mean, historically, sometimes people consider designers have egos. Yeah. But I think having that type of class dynamic um, where you have this extreme mix of students could bring that humility into the classroom. And hopefully they remember that when they go into their professional practice as well. Hmm. So that's one of the important things you try to impart on your students is humility. I'm just wondering how, maybe if you could elaborate a little bit more on like how having humility or a big ego could affect your design practice or yeah being a designer one of my best friends back in cincinnati we will have this discussion sometimes argument around you know art versus design and, yeah you know, it's like there's an age-old argument i right. think every person in the profession whether you're an artist or a designer has had that yeah conversation yeah um and you know the biggest thing that i've always established is that you know design is a professional practice that is meant for the many and it's meant for the many to to use. So it's a it's a it's a vehicle, whatever that vehicle is, that we have to utilize to get a task done, or to utilize to um, to complete something. Where art is it has a subjective level that anyone can take any type of interpretation of it. Yeah, in art, it is about like whether I can either like it, love it, want to purchase it, put it on my wall enjoy it whereas design is i need this to complete something i need this detergent to go home and do my laundry i need this brochure so i can understand what the services that this hospital offers so i can 
know which one to choose then. Yeah. So or the interface of a website. Or the interface or of the website. Like so like it's those are like vehicles mm. that design has to craft for people to use so they can complete something then. And so a designer must take themselves out of the equation mm. when they're designing something for a mass of people, which is where the humility comes in. Okay. You must be able to like separate yourself from your work. So you can make something that people can use. Yeah. I mean, this still happens now, but during like the early days of design, I mean, you can read books about, you know, like some famous designers was like, they'll go into a room and they'll say like, you're, this is your design. This is the design you're going to use and pay me now. And it's like, yeah, uh, it's like, this is, that's the stereotype that some designers or some, you know, people who are non-designers, our clients have of designers. Yeah. Like this mad men ad agency. Exactly. Kind of that, that mad men, um, age of design. And it's like, design is not like that anymore. Um, mm. it design has now has a seat at the table where it didn't for a very, very long time at the business table because designers ha- are getting smarter around that they need to make sure that their design meets not just the needs of the people that they're designing for, but it's also meeting the business needs of the company they're designing it for then as well too. And for us to be able to like have that seat at the table, our design work can't just be about fonts, typefaces, colors, paper choices and different things like that, logos and things like that is about this design will help raise your audience level from where it is now to this level. And this is why, and this is why we need to reach this larger audience. So the conversation Mm -hmm. of like the value of design has changed to not just about beautification. It's about the business of design then. Yeah. And disseminating information or Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, a designer is no less creative than an artist in the way that they're trying to come up with a solution for a problem. Maybe an artist has a problem uh, in a sense of some some way they want to try to create or express themselves, and then the designer is also using just as much creativity to solve a different problem that's probably going to be more widely interacted with or has to have some kind of a utilitarian purpose. Right. Both art and design are trying to tell a story. The story that art has is usually about, you know, trying to tell a story that relates to or is speaking on a historical matter or relating to a current event or um, telling the story of an emotional moment. Yeah, And design has those same type of uh, storytelling, but sometimes design is about evoking an emotion. Sometimes design can be about, if I look at something, then it evokes a story of my childhood when my mom bought that exact same product. Mm, you know, like yeah. there's, there's like, um, there's great um, statistics about, you know, most people, most kids are 50 to 60% most likely to buy the exact same products that their parents bought. Oh, wow. And it's because of that visceral remembrance of my mom used Tide, I'm buying Tide. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We bought Jiffy peanut butter, I'm going to buy Jiffy peanut butter. Yeah. And it's like, so it's like those connections and like, those are, those are, you know, 
unconscious stories sometimes, or it's just like buyer lo- or what we'll call in the industry buyer loyalty as well mm-hmm. too. But in the, at the end of the day, there's a story of like why people are buying certain products. Then it usually starts out with something that is uh, memorable, but then it can also be about you recommending a product to me because you're recommending that product to me because you have a story behind it. Yeah. Then, so it's a different type of storytelling hmm. um, that art has, and, and many people can have like different interpretations of stories from a piece of art. Where usually in the product world or in design world, it's again it's back to a utility or it's back to a visceral moment that we remember about that product or our parents using that product. Then, yeah, it's a lot more intentional mm-hmm. and specific. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas art could be maybe a lot more open, very open. Well, this makes me wonder when in your life you first even noticed that things were designed or saw design or even thought that you wanted to do this as a living, like how far back do we have to go? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually started, I will say like somewhat professionally designing back in high school. Okay. It was... My my brother is this amazing talented artist. He he draws. Um, he's and he's drawn for a very very long time. And so as a young kid, emulate my brother. Yeah. <laughs> and you know I started drawing as well too. And you know start doing you know drawings and things like that. But I can't. I mean the the earliest story that I can remember about it becoming from fine art to design work is someone asking me to draw something and apply it to a t-shirt oh yeah which is design i mean it's it's like taking something that has like a emblematic meaning to a person or a group and applying it to something that's mass produced for people to wear around yeah yeah that's probably like the earliest start of like actually doing this graphic design that i can remember without really knowing that i was doing graphic design then (laughs) yeah I, I, i can actually relate to that that's so funny i forgot all about this like in i think it was in middle school there was a contest to design a t-shirt graphic for the science club or something Mm. and i won (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I don't think any of those shirts still exist. But, uh, that was pretty exciting. Um, so once you were asked to do that first shirt, then kind of what came next? Like, how did that lead into working for IBM? Oh wow! Yeah, that's, that's a well. It's, it's, it's kind a long of, path. It's a long path. It's kind of like a, uh, a, a swinging path as well, too. So actually. Um, so I did I actually ended up doing a lot of design work in high school. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, actually, because I I grew up when I was in high school. It was the beginning of the Mac Classic, so I started uh, using the Mac Classic when it first came out. So the the oh wow, and I was one of the few students who actually knew how to use Mac Draw, Photoshop dot. Eight, eight or dot five or whatever it was that yeah. when it first came out <laughs> wow and um and so i could actually draw on the computer actually pretty fast um yeah. and uh, i knew how to like take a picture and bring it into the computer and manipulate it and yeah. things like that and so throughout high school i was actually doing a lot of a lot of design work doing brochures and doing presentations and again, so you were like the guy i was the guy knew you could do it yeah i was like mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of design work for a lot of 
school clubs and okay. things like that. And got paid, or it was just part of school, or something. It was. <laughs> I was dumb at that time. <laughs> we all were. So you know, asking for money, I was like, I can get paid for the, like the, the whole notion that I can get paid for doing that was like over my head. Like yeah, yeah, I, I had course. no clue that yeah. it was even a career path at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but, you were just drawing like with a mouse or something. Yeah, I was just <laughs> drawing with a that clunky box mouse from the. <laughs> It's like, uh, yeah, it's like, I wonder, like, how did I do that? (laughs) But somehow I was able to do it. Um, But I actually, um, before, so I graduated from high school, but instead of going to school, I joined the army. Oh, wow. So I spent eight years in the military, four years active, four years reserve. And that kind of like somewhat derailed me from continuing that that journey um, into design. Why did you make that decision? I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't pay for school. There's no okay. way. Like I, I grew up in the inner city, Louisville, in the projects. Single parent. I have an older brother, older older sister, and um, there's no way my family could afford for me to go to school. Yeah. Uh, f- to a college. So I saw the military as an opportunity to eventually go to school, but also to get out of the projects. Yeah. Um. And three, like I was actually kind of tired. Like, I actually noticed that if I probably went to school, I probably would have dropped out. Oh, yeah. Because um, I was just, I you, wasn't, I wasn't needed ready. A break. I needed a break. I really needed the break. maturity. Yes, maybe. definitely. Ma- maturity helped. <laughs> <laughs> and the GI Bill, I'm guessing. Yeah, right? the GI of... Bill helped a lot. Um, so, yeah, so I, I took a eight-year break. Actually, about a six-year break. When I was on reserve duty, I, I actually started attending a community college. I found this program called communication arts or communication design. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no graphic design. I don't think many schools had graphic design even at that point in the, in the 90s. So took that, learned a lot about it, did more research on it and, when I was still in community college. and Back in Kentucky? Or back in Kentucky, else? yeah. Okay. I was still in Kentucky, in Louisville. That's where I'm from. Yeah. And um, it's like, I'm enjoying it. This is pretty cool. Like, I think I can do something with this and it's memorable of what I was doing when I was in high school as well too. Mm. And so when I um, did a lot of research, I looked at, you know, so what schools offered this degree program in design or commercial, commercial art. And of course there was, I was wanting to stay close. I, my circle was, you know, from Louisville and did like a radius of like, if I wanted to come back home or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that radius, there was university of Cincinnati's DAT program, um, Northern Kentucky university, which is where I eventually ended up along with a couple other schools. Mm -hmm. And so I actually started out at DAP. So I took a semester at, at, at university of Cincinnati and I hated it. It was a program where I felt like a number. Oh, wow. And it's like, I just went through the military feeling like I was the number. I don't want to go yeah, to school yeah, yeah. feeling like that. Um, and so I actually went across the river, which is where Northern Kentucky is. And I checked out their program. And it was like small class sizes. Most of the classes were taught by adjuncts, mm-hmm. uh, which I truly you know, am appreciative of the whole adjunct teaching program because yeah. they're actually working professionals. Yeah. So I knew I would be learning. And at this point, like I was really... I matured a lot. I learned a lot of like what I should and shouldn't do and like what makes good education as well too. And so like 
I knew to be looking for programs that had not just full-time faculty teaching, yeah. like that they had a mix of professionals and full-time faculty, tenure-track faculty teaching the courses as well, yeah. too. Yeah. And so I was like, let me just drop out of UC. I'll go across the river to NKU and, you know, I'll, you know, invest in that. And it ended up being like one of the best decisions of my life. Wow. Um, just because of the size of the program, the intimacy of like the interaction with the, with the, the faculty, the working professionals who like some of those people were actually ended up hiring me. Oh, wow. um, and some of them are, are still my friends as well too. Mm-hmm. And so like that program helped me get back into design. And so before I graduated, I actually got a job offer from John Carpenter, who ran a company called Benchmark, which is no longer around anymore. He came to my senior portfolio development class, and we were presenting our work. And he, you know, gave me a, a decent review. Like I didn't cry or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so like I thought it was, I was, you know, it was like great, great to meet you. Da da. Uh, about a couple weeks later. Um, Bob Johnson, who was the faculty teaching the class, called me to his office and he was like, so John really liked your work and he wants to like you to come in and interview. I was like, awesome. <laughs> I have no clue how to put a portfolio together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so John, uh, Bob actually helped me put together my first portfolio, which was just mainly all my school work. And actually, yeah. actually, I actually did a lot of... Um, on campus work outside of my classroom. So mm-hmm. I was lucky that I had not just classwork. I actually had magazine design from the campus magazine that I used to uh, be the editor of mm. um, some theater partnerships that I did theater posters for, uh, for on campus as well too. So I actually had like professional work that I could stick in my book as well too. Yeah. Kind of similar to high school, right? You're doing all yeah, this extra doing stuff. Yeah, doing this extra stuff for clubs and free. <laughs> yeah, I was doing for free. <laughs> for free. <laughs> Emphasis on free. And what <laughs> and maybe quickly like what how would you describe your style back then or the I mean I'm sure are you horrified when you look back or are you like man I was pretty good or how do, how do you feel about when you look at that time like what you were doing the work you were doing? It's interesting you asked me that question like I, I would say it was still um, I like simple design. I like mm-hmm. meaningful design. Um, every, so when I say meaningful, I mean like everything on the page has a meaning. Yeah. Um, it's not just, just frills on the page. Mm-hmm. And um, I still design that way as well, though, too. But I, I think a lot of that work, I look at it now and I was like, oh, I still kind of design that way a bit better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's definitely uh, it's it's um, my design work hasn't really changed that much since my early days of college. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Um, I actually, I mean, I, I cleaned out my office and you know found a bunch of old slides of you know transparencies of yeah. my work that uh, a friend of mine shot, and it's like, oh yeah, wow, like that looks familiar. Yeah, um, I would never show that again, but. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that was nature or nurture as far as the program you were in, the design program, your style? Um, I would say it was most likely influenced by the trends of the time. Okay. Um, When I was in school. What time period was this? This was uh, late 90s. Okay. So I went to 
to NKU from 95 to 99. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, a lot of really experimentation and typography and experimentation in photography, a lot of work around what I would call like, you know, grunge design mm-hmm. um, came out. David Carson, mm-hmm. uh, which was a big um, designer of the time did a lot of work for those alternative music magazines that were out at the time. Yeah. Huh magazine and some other music magazines where he was just taking like ripped up pieces and like, you know, scratch surface stuff and like Photoshopping it and creating like these very like intense, what people will call like, that's design. Like that's graphic design. It's like, it was a different type of design. Yeah. And it was the design that attracted me, but it wasn't my style. And I knew that by trying to experiment with it. And as, as I was working and trying to, you know, in the vein of, you know, mm-hmm. like he learned by like trying to emulate someone else first. Yeah. I found that it was like, this isn't me. This doesn't feel right. I don't like this style. And so I was still searching around and, you know, doing research. And I gravitated toward more of there is a, a, a series of design posters created by a designer at Pentagram. And it was for the uh, a theater company. And they were very simple but graphic in a different way where she was using um, like a single figure, but this like super graphic typography that was breaking all the rules mm. at that point. So it was like big typefaces or fat fonts with like very skinny fonts and all different sizes and things like that. And it's like, this is interesting. Like, let me see what I can do with that. Yeah. And I really liked that style. But even then I was like, kept simplifying things like it's like and as i reflect on it now i can see it was like i was just looking for like everything on the page to have some type of meaning yeah then and so that's where i come at now with that with that style of like of just having meaningful design elements on a page to convey a message or convey a story um to the audience yeah So how did that first job then lead to where you are now? Um, it's quite a span of time. Yeah, so that was like I was at Benchmark for nine years. Oh wow! And I was I was, I never thought like to me like that was a natural thing. My mom was never a person to like jump from job to job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like that was just kind of what they call a Protestant worth ethic. Like you stay where where you start. Yeah, that blue collar type of like yeah, thing. Yeah, and. Um, and so I stayed there for nine years and then I realized, you know, again, you know, reflecting, it's like, I'm not growing anymore. I'm mm. not really, I mean, I'm doing great work. I love being here at Benchmark. I love the people that I'm working with, but I'm not growing as an individual. Mm. I'm not growing in my skill sets. And so I went from there, which was about 50 person medium design agency to a five person Oh, wow. Design studio where actually one of my teachers, Julie Courtney and Jackie Roberto, uh, they were both my teachers at NKU. And there's like, we want to hire you. It's like, I think I'm interested. (laughs) And so I went from a large, large studio to a five person, a women owned company. And they were amazing. I love working with them. And I learned a lot by going from a company where I was only responsible for certain things to a small shop where I had to do it all. 
Wow. Like I did the illustration. I hired the art director, uh, art directed people, art directed photographers. I had to, you know, build my hours. I had to like do lots of production mm. and different things like that. Where it's like, that was like an amazing experience. Those were the things I wasn't getting from being at Benchmark. Yeah. Like learning all those production skill sets and learning how to budget and learning how to art direct different things like that. And so I was only there for a year, and that's when I moved to Austin, mm. Texas, um, for career change here. Yeah. And so I actually spent six years at YNR, Young and Rubicon, as I uh, worked my way up from a art director to a, a so- associate creative director there. And here that in was Austin. Here in Austin. Yeah. And that's when I got my first introduction to technology design. Mm. Um, so, like, all my work in Cincinnati – was consumer, uh, consumer home products, beauty care, because Parker, that's where Parker and Gamble is. So yeah. That was our principal client. Oh, okay. Uh, lots of agencies live off of Parker and Gamble um, as a client there. And so here, when I moved to Austin, I kind of had that same book, but what I realized was that I was lacking in technology work. Hmm. Um, fortunately, when I got hired on at, at YNR, that they saw that I could do the work, even though I don't have a technology uh, background, yeah, and so that's where I started to get into the technology space. Um, did work for Samsung and St. David's Da Vinci Robots, and who else? Um, a- AMD uh, yeah. was another of my clients as well too. And that's where I got that technology background. And then eventually, after six years of being at YNR, I've had that same feeling again okay. that I had a benchmark. I'm not growing. I'm not learning much new things here. Love the company, love the people. And that's when uh, it just so happened that IBM was starting a formal design practice at the company Mm. globally. A former contractor that I used to hire for a lot of uh, web design work, um, she was working there. And she reached out to me. It's like, hey, I'm at IBM. You know, would you be interested in like maybe coming over or, you know, you know, working here? And like, I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? No. Well, because at that time, I was carrying the, the, the stigma and the stereotype of working in-house. Mm. Um, so there's like this inner, like quiet fight between like, if you work at an agency, you're cool. If you work in-house, you're you're dull. Oh wow! Okay, um, and this and I can understand why because a lot of in-house companies don't have the richness of a creative atmosphere. In yeah, them. it's like watered down, or right? It's really watered down. Or... You're managed by someone who's probably not a designer, so like you can oh. create anything, and they're like, "I love it," and <laughs> or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. "My daughter loves purple. Can you make that purple and like send it out?" It's like. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so you're not getting pushed. You're not getting creatively, pushed creatively, yeah. and you don't have that atmosphere to to, to like get influenced by either. Hmm. But um, um, she actually contacted me. Ashley contacted me a couple of times to like come over, and so like, okay, fine, I'll come over. You buy me lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I went over and to the campus and went upstairs, and she actually we stepped out on the floor, and I thought we were on the floor we were going to go to. And I'd like looked at this floor and it was like this 1980s 
brown, dark, fluorescent hall hallways, these yeah. little micro offices. And I'm like, no, there is no way I'm working here. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like, I just wanted to show you this. Oh. Okay. And it's like, I was like, okay. <laughs> like, this is not a good first start. <laughs> You're not encouraging me to work here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we went upstairs to the eighth floor which was the brand new spanking floor yeah. that they had designed for designers to work in this open concept, collaborative atmosphere. And I was like, you have my curiosity. Now you have my interest. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. What are y'all doing here? And it was like, so she gave me the whole backstory of like design. IBM was starting a formal design practice, mm-hmm. a formal discipline. They're hiring all these top designers from around the country and from these top schools and from around the world to create this formal practice. And I was like, okay, yeah, like, what do y'all need me to do? Like, I have, I'm not a product designer, so I don't design software and things like that. We just, we need industry leaders who can, like, foster all these new right out of college designers to help us guide them, to help them adopt that corporate atmosphere that Mm. they have never worked in before ever. And I was like, oh, well, I never worked in it either, but like, I'll, you know, I'll try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's when I started at IBM. Uh, it'd be actually um, uh, almost six years now. Yeah. And so like, I've, I've been um, doing lots of things there, which is, you know, I don't think I'll ever get bored um, <laughs> at IBM <laughs> because I, in the six years I've been there, I've been in four different roles. And from actually designing product, I started out doing product design for security, went from that to being a enterprise design thinking facilitator. So I was teaching other designers and then eventually other IBMers how to apply design thinking within their practice. And then I ended up from there actually owning the programs that train IBMers and designers and enterprise design thinking and agile practices and how to uh, properly onboard people into Mm -hmm. a, a company then as well too. So I ended up being the owner of those programs. And now like those programs that I was owning Damon Diener, who's my boss now, and I were owning under the, the design practice, HR saw the work that we were doing on in this discipline of design. And we thought we were going to get our hand slapped because we were breaking rules. It's like, let's be honest. Like, it's just like, we're just breaking HR rules. It was like, ugh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but then it was like, no, like, we want you all to do what you all are doing at scale. Mm. And so that's when we went from just working with only designers to now we're working within IBM HR and we're applying design thinking, we're applying agile practices to, you know, HR practitioners so they can like create better experiences for IBM employees who use our, who use our services then, which everyone uses our services then. Yeah. Maybe you could um, elaborate or define like, design thinking and agile what did Mm -hmm. you say agile agile yeah design thinking has been around for a long time and agile as well too for us to be able to use either one of those practices we had to create something that could scale 
And so the design office, the design program office that owns the design thinking framework created a created a practice called enterprise design thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how can we create a, a framework that a product team or a service team can use this framework and utilize the activities within that framework to create experiences that people want hmm. and at scale. So when we're talking about at scale, we're talking about teams that 99% of the teams at IBM are remote. So like I may have a team member in Malaysia, I may have a team member in um, Germany and another group in the, in the U.S. And so we're all over the place. Hmm. But a lot of the work that we work on is for large amounts of people. It's for large industries. It's for large corporations that we that are our clients. Then. Yeah. Um, and so the enterprise design thinking framework is about creating those meaningful experiences at scale. And then agile is about how can we do this work right. How can we make sure that we as a team are aligned on what we're going to do, that we are aligned on what deliverable we're going to deliver within this two week or three week sprint that we have. Yeah. And so what, what we like to, to describe it as enterprise design thinking is about doing the right work. Agile is about doing the work right. And so those two frameworks work hand in hand because yeah. they both are in service of the user then. Mm-hmm. Whether the user is our customer or whether that user is ourselves and how we work better together then. If you have a great team that works and gels together and is in sync and using agile practices, they're going to deliver great work for the people who uses our products and services then as well too. Yeah. What design thinking and agile allow us to do is it helps us within this large corporation, the tendency of silos happen. Hmm. And so because we're so remote or we're so micro focused on like, I need to build this thing right here. And we forget that that one thing that you're building is part of a larger experience. Mm-hmm. And being a part of that larger experience, there are other people that you need to work with then as well, too. And so by having these activities and these um, ways of working that bring us together, then it allows us to like have better teamwork. It allows us to collaborate together. It allows us to like transmit information much more easily because the whole thing with design thinking is that everything is transparent and that no idea is the best idea. It's about experimentation. It's about how can we iterate on that quickly, put it out there, see how Scott feels about it, get a response from him and do another iteration on it based off the feedback that we get from yeah. then. And but being able to bring that back and like let everyone know on the teams, like, hey, we put this in front of someone and this is their response. How can we as a team improve this? What things do we keep and what things do we iterate on for the next interaction then as well too then? And that goes into not just a product, whether it's a digital experience, but it also goes into service as well too. Uh, think about if you choosing your insurance plan. That's a service. 
and each part of that service, whether it's like you as an insurance broker has to introduce that to me or whether it's a digital experience, that experience can be a make or break moment for that yeah. c- customer then. Or how I manage my account or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Or like how you get customer service yeah. then as well too. What is that like? Is it a chat bot that doesn't really know all the answers? Is it a person? Is it a, is it a, um, you know, a FAQ that has all the like top questions that it repeatedly gets all the time then? Yeah. All those little moments matter. And so as a team, when you have a team of people that are communicating better together and are working toward the same goal, then the product experience improves greatly then. Yeah. And that's where that, you know, what I was talking about earlier, where like that business design comes in, you know, you know, how do we measure that we accomplish this task? How do we know that when done is done? Um, how do we know that we made a marketable improvement in the experience for a person? And it's about in, including that person in the process then. It's about communicating clearly across the team to make sure that we all know that this is our metric. This is our KPI. This is the thing that we got to hit to know that we are going to improve this experience then. And, and uh, having that really makes a difference of having clear transparency of the strategy across the team then. And it breaks those silos down so that no one is focused on what I have to deliver. It's about what we have to deliver as a team. Isn't, doesn't this come back to the humility you were talking about? It exactly. sounds like that's the basis yes, of this. Definitely. And, you know, we, uh, when we introduced enterprise design thinking, a lot of that humility came into play where, you know, we will always hear stories between like development hates design, design hates development, you know, marketing's out there selling something that they have no clue what the product can do or it can't do that then. Right. And so um, part of that humility was, you know, as a facilitator of design thinking, we will have to do activities just to bring this team together before we even got into the work. It was about because a lot of these team members, they like I was saying before, they work in different parts of the world or in the country. They only know each other through a phone call or through a WebEx meeting or something like that. Then. Yeah. And so a lot of the times when we first started introducing design thinking, everyone had to fly in. So it's like we will make sure you can get the budget to fly in, but everyone needs to be here. All the key players need to be in the same room. And for a large majority of those teams, it was the first time that they ever met yeah. their senior development architect or ever met their offering manager. Then they because they're just so used to just communicating over the, the over the phone or on a video call. Then yeah, and so that was one barrier breaking down. The next barrier was having empathy for the different disciplines on the team. And so one of those activities to like help break that down is like, all right, you're a developer. I want you to do an empathy map of a designer. You designers do an empathy map of the development team. And like we would do cross disciplines, empathy maps. And what we found was that there were so these, these disciplines would have stereotypes of these other roles that they have to work with on their team then. And by having that activity as a constructive and an open activity with a 
facilitator that has thick skin. (laughs) It it really helped break down the barriers of, you know, like helping them understand I have this stereotype of you because you just throw things over the wall at me and think I can just code them overnight. And you didn't talk to me or Mm. uh, like for a designer it's like, well, I thought you can do this because you say you can do it. It's like, well, you didn't ask me. You didn't show me your ideals early. So there's like breaking down those barriers in the first day just to get people to like say kumbaya with each other. And then after that first day, it was like, go out, have a beer and keep this discussion going then. Mm-hmm. And so that would change that whole dynamic of the team so they can like actually get to understand each other then and understand each other's role mm-hmm. as well, too. And before we can even get into the work, which a lot of teams just like, just go do it. It's like, I don't care if you don't like them, like, just do it. It's like, if I don't like them, the work's going to suck. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle then as well, too, to get it, get it completed then. Yeah, I, I, I had noted some other parts of the toolkit that are listed on, there's a website for mm-hmm. um, enterprise design thinking. As is scenario map, empathy map, like you were saying, big idea vignettes, assumptions and questions, hopes and fears, prioritization grid. You know, it just, right. I don't know. I kind of, as I was reading all these things, I was like, I want to learn about these things and apply them to my own life. And, mm-hmm. and essentially what some of the things you're talking about, like this empathy map, is there's, there's a mental exercise that I do sometimes that is essentially like, trying to empathize with someone else that I might feel something negative about or have some preconceived idea about or something and try to empathize. Like it's, it really sounds like the skills that you're trying to, and these processes and activities that you're talking about that these employees are doing are things that anyone would want to do just in their life. Like as a person there, it just sounds like you're working towards healthy relational practices It that how have you then, applied or seen these different techniques applied just in your life and Mm. you know in your relationships or other people like you know yeah definitely it's it's the activities and this is the thing that i you know there are definitely stories of like design thinking is falsehood or different things like that and uh, but the first question when i when i see those articles is like have you actually tried it or have you practiced it or is it just based off of you're afraid to try it right then or just skeptical or skeptical pessimistic and pessimistic yeah. then um because yeah there's been a lot of like you know different type of programs that you know this will fix everything on your team or fix everything in your life um i i think for me personally you know outside of ibm these activities are great in just helping me assess a moment or assess several previous moments um you know if you think about an as is journey it's like what was it like before or what as it what is it is now and so to be able to map out and be open to like put down what were you doing what were you thinking in that moment what were you feeling then and being able to the uh, which i think is a key thing with all of these activities is to share it Hmm. share it with someone that's either a part of that or you know whether it's like a first degree or second degree second degree or a third degree relationship being able to share it with someone and ask for 
is this right? Is yeah. this, you know, what happened in that situation there? And being able to get an honest answer is like, well, yeah, that happened, that happened. Um, I didn't realize that when that happened, you were thinking and feeling that. And so, and it allows to have that, you know, what, you know, the same type of constructive conversation that you would have if you were doing this for like actual professional work Mm -hmm. then as well too. Um, And so that's the one of the key things with any of those activities. Like I said before, even like the hopes and fears is about, you know, what do you hope to get out of this, you know, arrangement, you know, whether it is new relationship or like maybe there's like a, like a, 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 a hurdle that you're trying to um, get over in something. It's like, so what am I, what are we hoping to get out of this? What are our fears of why we are not getting it or, or not getting there or we can't get past this hump or what's holding us back then? Yeah. And to like be able to like put that out there and have a constructive conversation around that artifact just I think really helps a lot of people, especially in a world now where we're just, we're, we have a lack of words hmm. to be able to, you know, socialize with each other in a face-to-face setting, um, whether it's because of the internet or just because of technology in general, it's, it's become harder for people to communicate in a tactful, meaningful manner now like a a lot of people are have become reactive versus thinking and then saying what they're you know in a more constructive way to each other then yeah um and that's the thing i love about these activities is that it allows that to happen and one of the key things is uh about those activities like once on once it's put on the wall there it's like it's it belongs to everyone so it's not that's my idea or like that's my thought it's like oh actually in this moment I was feeling the same way yeah like I just couldn't didn't know how to say it or like how to you know tell you yeah that that's how I was feeling so I acted this way and the opposite then because I didn't know how to process it then yeah Uh, I was watching one video and I guess kind of what you're describing I'm assuming with a lot of these activities there's almost like a a wall or a board or something and there's all these post-it notes and Mm -hmm. there's different columns and things is that how a lot of these play out where it's like everyone's contributing post-its of thoughts and whatever they're addressing or filling in these different blanks and that and then everyone's kind of seeing it and talking about it and right wow right exactly so like having this activity be live um whether it's you know in a room people are in the room doing the activity together or we have actually have a digital version of it where we can, mm. you can do it remotely. So no matter where people are in the world, you can do the exact same type of oh, activity, cool. yeah. which is great. Um, saves company a lot of money from flying yeah. people in. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, the, the, the whole purpose of that activity is to stop meetings where we're just talking in a circle and we're not looking at anything and being able to like, Everyone has a point of view or has a subject matter expertise or knows something about what we're trying to solve here. So let's get it all on the wall. Let's organize it based off the activity and use that as our discussion point. 
Yeah. So it really keeps a meeting focused and targeted toward what everyone is looking at. Everyone is looking at the same artifact. So no one eliminates the possibility of someone having like some other ideal of what they're describing there because we're all looking at the same thing. Then. Yeah. And then if there's no, if there's a, a lack of clarity around a, a moment or a post-it or like a whole stream, people can talk about it then. And then like only focus in on that area that we need clarity on as well too. Mm. So it really helps. Like the past six years, I've probably had like some of the most like constructive meetings because of we may do like light versions of these activities in a quick meeting Mm -hmm. just to make sure that we're all saying or like we have our ideas. We're all saying the same thing, but are we really saying the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. And so like having the activities allows us to like really make sure that we are all in agreement of like when I say this, this is what I mean. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I agree. Like, oh, I actually had a different point of view. Like, when you were saying this, I actually thought this. Then. Yeah. But now we can have that discussion because now we've revealed that there is a moment of clarity that needs to be that had by the team then. Yeah, yeah. So the enterprise design thinking, were you a part of configuring some of these activities or like coming up with this or is it just something that you're using as a tool within the within ibm uh so i wasn't one of the enterprise design thinking founders i've worked on v2 of that so the original ibm design thinking was crafted by um, some of the the original um what i call the og the beginners of the new design program yeah doug powell adam cutler phil gilbert and they all worked with some of the external senior thought leaders, IDEO, um, Bain, and some different other you know consultancies to create this first. They create the first version of design thinking at IBM. Right. And then um, when we did the second version, I supported that team. Again, Adam Cutler was on that team, uh, as well as other amazing designers um, at IBM, um, created a second version, which is, uh, it originally came out as um, IBM Design Thinking. And we saw the need of like what makes us different than the ideal design thinking and all these other design thinking consultancies is and the biggest difference is that ours is about scale, um, which is why we call it enterprise design thinking because it's meant to work at a scale that a lot of other design thinking programs are just don't operate at mm-hmm. at that level then. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the activities are very, very similar to what you may see at IDEO or you may see at AC4D or other programs that teach design thinking but we have some core practices uh, that are you know, pertinent to enterprise design thinking that makes it work. Yeah. I'm just wondering, I'll just ask for myself, like, or someone listening, if someone listening is like, wow, that sounds so cool. I want to learn more about this. Or is there any way that I could implement this into my own company or my life? I mean, is that a possibility or is this like a proprietary thing? No, it's definitely not proprietary of, you know, we definitely, you know, we sell the practice to, other corporations but design thinking has become one of those really accessible um, frameworks that a lot of people can use Um, in the IBM sense we do offer an open source class 
um, you can get your practitioner badge without paying anything. And it teaches you the basic fundamentals of enterprise design thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get a badge for it. And you know, badges is the like new um, certification that is hot, is popping up. A lot of companies are using it now to like show that you know, I have people who have skill sets and they've been through a test yeah. um, to to say that they've been certified within it. So uh, we have our own um, set of uh, badges for design mm-hmm. thinking. There's also a lot of other practices as well, too. IDEO um, has several what they call chapters around the country where you can like actually practice design thinking within the IDEO framework. And it's, you know, the great thing is that because we're using a lot of the same language, you can bounce from one consultancy to another consultancy to another school and be familiar with the framework because we have the same language there as well too. Everyone has their own little nuance of how they teach it or different things like that. The biggest thing is, is that whenever you hear the word, the design thinking process, it, I just want to cringe because like it's not a process. It's a framework. It's intentionally designed so that you need to reflect on what problem that you're trying to solve in this space that you're trying to solve in and choose the activity right. that will work best to help you solve it then. So if it was a process, it would be like, start with step one, start with step two, go to three. It's like, no, 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 no. That is one of the biggest um, hangups I have when I hear quote unquote experts talking about design thinking It's because they'll call it a process. And it's like, whenever you say process, that's like hurting us Yeah, because it's not a process. It's a framework. Yeah. Yeah. There was a few other things that kind of made me think of something that an artist might relate to uh, the loop. Oh yeah. You're talking about observing, reflecting and making, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That seems like an artist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How could you relate that? I mean, what am I, I'm just kind of grabbing that out of nowhere, but you know, that's part of it, right? Yes, yeah, definitely. So the loop, uh, the loop is a, it's something that we do every day. It's a unconscious way of thinking and doing and observing the world as well too and what we like to call it is let's bring this out as a you know as a conscious way of working and what i like to do is or we always all like to do is start about reflecting where are you in the moment if you're working on a product team you may be thinking about what are we trying to solve with this product here? What are we, what are, what is the problem? What are people saying about this? If you're an artist, you're reflecting on what is this feeling that I have? Or what is this, what is my reaction? I'm reflecting on something that I may have seen on TV or seeing that person on the street or seeing something that, you know, it evokes a feeling mm-hmm. then. And then we would like to go into observe. So starting in the middle with reflect and then going to observe. If again, if you're back on the product team, I have this problem. Let me go and see and talk to people and hear what they are saying or watch them actually use my product or service. If you're an artist, you're probably going to go do research. 
you're gonna go find out more. Like, say we're talking about the homeless problem in Austin here.、Mm-hmm. If you see a homeless person and you're reflecting, you're reflecting on that moment of why did I get that reaction, or why did I react to them that way, or why do I think that they're only there because it, it's their fault? Then, right. You're gonna go out and hopefully do some research. Talk to him or her. Go to city hall and understand why is rent so high in Austin, or understand what are the stats of homelessness in Austin. What is the life of someone who like went from like having something to nothing? Then yeah, yeah. And then going back to reflect and like, what did I just learn? When I went to the library, when I talked to that person, when I, you know, actually watched them use my product or watched them, that homeless person in their day-to-day life, then, and then once I process what I just learned, then I make something. I may make, you know, a prototype in the design world to just kind of like. So I saw this problem. I saw where they were getting hung up at. Let me change or tweak the experience that we had we own to see if it improves it. Then, if I'm an artist, I may may start making sketches or making some prototypes or making something, whatever my my medium is, to bring that research, bring that emotion to life. And then you go back to reflect. What did I just make?、Hmm. Is it something that is True to my feeling, is it something true that will help that person using my product or service? Then, if I'm an artist, you know, is that a true capture of what I'm feeling? Is that a true capture of the research that I did about homelessness in Austin or that individual、um, that I met on the street? And then you may go back into observe again. It's like in the product space, I was like, hey. Does this work? Did this thing that I made for you really actually, you know, improve the experience for you? In the art world, it may be you put that piece on a wall, yeah, and you get people's reaction to it. You may invite that person, that homeless person, it's like, "Hey, I made a piece, and I would love for you to see it, and I would love to hear what you think about it." Then, please come to the gallery, come to the library. And look at this piece, and I would love to like get your reaction to this. Then,、mm-hmm. and then you just go through that cycle again and again. You may、yeah. stop at observe, then your second observe phase. You may do another loop, then. But、mm-hmm. bringing that loop to life to make sure that we're going through each one of those stops, and making sure that we're like actually reflecting on where what we just made, what we just learned. Understanding what we just did, then yeah. Now imagine having a team do that. It gets、yeah. harder. <laughs> <Yeah> . Then so like that's why we like we know like that enterprise scaling like helps us allow to bring the team through that then,、um, and it works great for artists. It just is bringing that process to the foreground.、Mm-hmm. Um, some people may just just do it automatically. Like and they don't think about it. They don't even have to say it. It's just it's a natural part of the way that they yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. When you're working on a team internally at a company, you have to say it out loud because the majority of the time, most design teams want to just go make something. 
They don't want to put it in front of anyone. They don't want to go do research. They don't even want to reflect on like, what problem are we solving? Oh, you told me to go build that? I'm going to go build it. I'm going to make something then. And that's the problem that we're trying to stop because we need to stop making things that people don't really ask for. We need to make products and services that people are asking for that help solve a problem in whatever space that they're in. And it's actually a, a, a meaningful for them to use then as well too. Yeah. Whereas in art, I mean, it's not really necessarily about fixing anything. It's probably back again to um, for the artists and maybe fixing something within them internally to like allow them to get out in emotion hmm. or to like tell a mental story or bring that mental story that they have in their head to life. Um, so it's more of a personal self-help of them being able to like bring that story to life. Whereas in a design product business world, it's about team alignment Mm -hmm. and making sure that they're making the right thing that will help the individual user, which in turn will help the business then. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I was, I was just noticing um, your post-its on your computer, strong opinions, loosely held. Oh yeah. Is that something you live by? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I doing a lot of the work that I do. I I consider myself a servant leader. And so I'm always open to like helping other people. And a lot of that introduces me to a lot of different people on different, you know, experiences and career paths. And I run into, I tend to run into a lot of people that have very, very, very strong opinions. Mm. And I don't know where I found that, that posted, it, it, it was either in a podcast, cause I listened to a ton of podcasts yeah. and, or something like that. And it just stuck with me because it reminded me like as soon as someone said that, it just reminded me of like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's a, that is like a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but you know, it's also like, it's a reminder to me, like I may, I have strong opinions, but I need to like, just hold them to them loosely, you know, yeah. don't, don't, you know, no opinions were falling on the sword for. <laughs> yeah. 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 You've also got uh fear as a reaction. Courage is a decision. Why is that up there? another podcast yeah um (laughs) don't tell me which one don't ask me which one it is um that mentioned this earlier that as a society we become a very reactive society and um it takes a lot of courage to make decisions and but our we have a tendency to react to things which some a lot of the times we when we're reacting it's because it's we are afraid of like what just happened or what someone just said yeah or something that was presented to us that puts us in into an uncomfortable place i think a lot of times it takes a lot of courage to acknowledge that i'm afraid of that yeah that makes me feel uncomfortable and as soon as we can acknowledge that we have the courage to either make a decision then based off of what that fear is then versus reacting to it. Yeah. And a lot of the times that reaction is not going to be a good result. There's no good result from that reaction then. So that's why I love, I love, I love that 
quote because it's it, because of what's happening now we've become a very re- reactive society mm-hmm. um even just if you just i mean you can just look at a facebook stream or a twitter stream and like just see the reactions mm-hmm. of people it's like i don't think they really thought about that when they posted that yeah 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 <laughs> it's like, slow, down. slow down and think about put put yourself in that person's Jeez. Do an empathy map. Do an empathy map. <laughs> <laughs> like before you write your face. Right. <laughs> um, well, maybe we could finish um, if you wouldn't mind sharing about this course that you've taught a few times. That uh, is a way, I think, like you said, of just kind of giving back some of your wisdom and knowledge about design thinking that people can apply to their careers and to their lives. Maybe if you could just share some of the key components of that, that might be beneficial for people to hear about. Yeah, definitely. Um, so a couple years, so for several years, I've been teaching a lot of career oriented type of classes and his name is going to escape me. Um, he's actually a, uh, he's on faculty at Stanford Bennett. He, wrote this book about using design thinking in your life to improve it. Mm. And so I read that and a lot of the things that I was reading that in his book reminded me of a lot of stuff that I was just kind of like, I just kind of made up this course and I'm using some activities to like, you know, reframe the way that people are thinking about their careers or goal setting or finding mentors and different things like that. Mm -hmm. And so that course turned into something what happened was is that you know watching the market looking at the industry and seeing a lot of things um unfold is like i i kind of started seeing that a lot of people just struggling with careers in general yeah um around like is this the right career for me is this how do i even set goals for my careers what are the right skill sets that i need to like learn to be successful in my career where do i find a mentor different things like that and and so i took a course that i was doing in a in a uh, what i called uh, it was a program that i used to call lead and hustle that i ran internally at ibm and it was about helping the next set of designers to transition from being an individual contributor to management. And that management could be like people manager or just like, you know, discipline manager, uh, technical management then as well too. And there's a lot of soft skills that you have to de- de- develop and learn and emotional intelligence um, the word of the 21st century yeah, right. <laughs> that a lot of people have to develop to be good at that then. Mm. And so I took a lot of those pieces from that lead and hustle course that I ran at IBM and created this. It's about two. If you really wanted to get into it, it could be a three hour course that uses the base level understanding of design thinking. And, and most importantly, the loop you know, observe, reflect, make, and helps you ask some strategic questions that everyone needs to be asking themselves every now and then, no matter how successful you are in your career, just to make sure that you're on the right track or to make sure that you can like even start to map your next 
your next track as well too then as well mm-hmm. and so um, utilizing edt utilizing you know common questions that are kind of like open in the in the market i create like this one course that is it's a face-to-face course it's a peer learning course meaning that it's not about me being in front of the room i'm just a guide like or like or a sherpa like i'm just going to yeah. kind of like guide you yeah. through this you're going to actually probably learn a whole lot more by sitting next to your peer and being able to like play back how you're answering some of these questions in the course then as well too mm. so it's a lot of you know i think a lot of self-realization happens that's what i discovered in the course that i taught in the, when i taught this in atlanta there's a lot of self-realization that happens when you hear someone else is having the same issue as you are yeah when sure. you hear that someone is on the same trajectory as you and you all can like work together to like support each other in that yeah there are hard questions that people are just afraid to answer. Oh, okay. And I think that when you do this in a room together and you're willing to let down, you know, you don't have to let your everything down. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. just a little bit, just to be able to, like, have a conversation either with the room or with the individual next to you who's your buddy or you may not know them at all. And be able to like have a conversation about these things. And when people realize like they're not alone, when people realize that other people have similar issues or have similar things that they want to do and that there's nothing wrong with failing. And I think that's a big thing. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing wrong with failing. Failing is a learning moment. Sometimes when we fail, we just drop the goal that we've created and just move on. And the key thing with this course that I talk about toward the end of is that if you don't complete this, what does that mean? Does it mean that you failed? You've only failed if you dropped the goal and didn't complete it. But if you failed and you took the time to reflect and learn about why you failed and what you can do to change that course and who can help you with that, most importantly but do a course change, then you haven't failed. You've just learned something of like, don't do it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Figure out another way to do it then. Um, And that you're not alone in that. Mm. I think we have a tendency to think it's all on me. I have to do this. I have to accomplish this. These are my goals. It's like, yes, they're your goals, but you need people to help you accomplish them. Yeah, talk about maybe, (laughs) yeah, how do you find people to help your mentors? I mean... You know, I I think a lot of times, depending on, you know, where you're at, what discipline you're in, there are many, many ways. And, you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of like formal, you know, mentor programs. Because, yes, they do work for some people. I think they're probably a good way for people who just, you know, say if you move to a new city and you don't have a network yet. It's probably good for you to like find like a formal mentoring group or things like that just to introduce yourself to like, you know, people. Yeah. But for the most part, I think a lot of the times finding mentors, finding supporters, finding advocates, it's about putting yourself out there and finding people who like, who do you admire? Like who's doing work that you want to do? And then... You know, hopefully, if they're approachable, 
not going up to them and it's like, be my mentor. It's like, you're going to scare them off. They're not going to want to give you anything. Mm-hmm. But if you go to them, it's like, hey, like I love your work. I love it because of this. I've been wanting to do that. Can I just take you out to coffee? Mm-hmm. And, you know, possibly, you know, like pick your brain. And I have like 30 minutes. That's all I want. So like not taking too much of their time, letting them know why you want them to be your mentor or right. what are the things that you want to like grow in. And they will, you know, most likely they'll tell you, it's like, you know what? I don't have time, but here's another person that I know would be great to help you. Yeah. Or it's like, thank you. I'd, I'd love to like help you out. And, you know, I'd love to, to have coffee or lunch or whatever. And let's meet up in the next couple of weeks or so then as well too. But being able to like make that first ask is the biggest first step for a lot of people. Yeah. And the worst thing you can do is say no. Just move on worst. to the next. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot it, of people don't like, like rejection. I, I know it's it's what <laughs> you know. Hard. Welcome to the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I do. I had heard the advice though around this talk of finding mentors that you know person I was listening to. They were impressing the importance of like if you do, let's say you have this half an hour meeting with someone and they give you all this advice. Like you should probably follow through on their advice and. And follow up with them and show them that you've actually yes. followed up, followed through on mm-hmm. something and, and, and also maybe even try to figure out ways to add value to them, you know. Absolutely. Too. Definitely. The, the worst thing you can do is repeatedly go back to your mentor and ask the same question over and over again or not show that you listened to them and you've tried a couple of the suggestions that they've mentioned to you then. Yeah. I used to have a, a, a mentee. She's a great designer, but she always would either ask the same question or didn't try any of the suggestions. And I eventually, I think probably like by the third or fourth meeting, I was like, listen, I am here to help you. I want to help you, but I've made the same suggestions to you several times and you have not tried those. I don't want to waste your time. I definitely don't want you, want you wasting my time, but unless you're willing to try these things or if you just don't feel, if, if there's a reason why you're not trying them, tell me, yeah. like, let me know. Is it like too uncomfortable for you to try them? Let me know. And I can make some other suggestions then that may not be as, you know, intimidating or, you know, something that you're more accessible for you to do, be able to do. But if you're not going to try, then let's, I, I would say like, Let's end this now. And, you know, when they're when you're ready to, like, really take a step forward and, like, try some different things, you know, let's meet up again. Or maybe I'm not the right mentor for you. Maybe there is someone else that I can, like, recommend um, that will probably be a better mentor for you then as well, too. Yeah. Then. But definitely, to your point, you know, show evidence that you're trying. And, like, use that as continuing dialogue with your mentor like if it worked great if it didn't work what else can you do to like try something different then it's like, oh, i tried it what did i do wrong I'm right like, oh well you should have done this right but, exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i'm wondering um being married to an artist if you have any perspectives on just seeing the life of an artist or kind of being around all the artists that you know that things that you've learned in your life or through design thinking that you know do you think that would be beneficial for other artists to kind of consider 
Is that a? That's not an easy question. I don't no, think, but. It's, it's not. Easy <laughs> I mean, I'm just question. imagine like you have an have a wife that's an artist, and you go to a lot of openings, and you know a lot of artists, that, and you're in kind of a a different world. I just wonder if you have observations sometimes, like, wow, it'd be so much easier if some, this if these people did this this way, or oh, they should do this or that, or I don't, you know, I don't know, or just different attitudes or different philosophies that you have around you know how to apply design thinking to mm. just the life of an artist. I don't know, you know. Yeah, does that makes sense. Yeah, really it, it does. <laughs> um, I, I think you'd be amazed at like how similar artists and designers are. Well, yeah, sure. and it's you know like I think the first thing is they they will admit is like we're no we're not similar, and it's like yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, but I think a, a a huge, you know, like one of the things that I've always noticed is that we are always late or always turning in stuff at the last minute. Yeah, right. Artists and designers. <laughs> both of us. Yeah. Both are good at doing that. Um, but I would say, you know, you know, in, in the realm of design thinking, I think it's it helps with formalizing the conversation and really being able to, like, have some type of framework where you have a designer that's very one, two, three, left, right, left, right. And you have a designer that is like A, C, Z, like just organically connecting dots in their Mm -hmm. head and having this framework or this practice that can like help formalize conversations or arguments or being able to really negotiate you know, I th- I think you know I've I've actually have a uh, a friend and he's a he's a professional coach, um, marriage coach, and he actually uses some of the design thinking activities to help with negotiations between either divorced couples or you know currently married couples as well yeah. too, and like because it creates this neutral ground and it creates this space of like you put up what you want, I'll put up what I want, and we talk about each one. And why we want each one of those then. And then we have to like, what's the biggest value that's going to be help both of us then? Well, we we both want that. It's like, okay, cool. That goes up there. <laughs> right, <laughs> and right. so like it helps create like these better conversations um, with, you know, either couples or with people who are just, you know, diametrically different from each other then as well too. So not just art design, but just, you know, opposites attract but also there's sometimes there's tension as well too. And unless you have some type of mediator or like you can't hire a shrink forever, (laughs) they can't live with you forever either. Like those, those, like if you all agree on like, let's do these activities together to help us have better decisions um, together or like have better discussions together, then it helps with, with that relationship and it, I, I think the biggest thing is that it, it needs to be mutual. Um, yeah, that's like that's like my friends. Like this needs to be a mutual decision that you all choose. <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's like, but it, it does. It needs to be because you don't want to like drag someone into that if they don't want to like do it that way. Right. Um, and so it, it's important that you all both agree that this is how we're going to like make decisions. Then, and if it doesn't work, then like let's find a, a different way. Mm-hmm. Doing that. So it seems like it's really the core of it is just about communication and sharing. 
and just putting out putting the information out there so that it can be seen and talked about and worked through and mm-hmm. solutions can be discovered yes definitely mm-hmm. okay i'm just wondering maybe one last question do you have any just kind of based on everything that we've been talking about, do you have any like new year's end of year kind of procedures or, mm. you know, that you kind of think about evaluating your year or thinking of reevaluating where you are and looking to the next year? Do you have any, any uh, structure around that? Yeah, I, I actually do. So, um, about three years ago, I went through a, a very, very intense and formal, appointment review process at work mm. and um which is why i'm huge about reflection now it's like it's huge like everyone should be reflecting on their career or wherever they want to go um but going through that rigor and that process made me think made me realize it's like i need to do this more often and so at the end of the year which is actually kind of like when i was putting together my packet to become a design principal at ibm it made me think it's like I should do this every year. Um, this in, not that intense. Yeah, that was, that was intense. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like some self reflection of like making sure like am I in the right place? Am I doing something that I love? What can I change for improvement? What did I what did I grow in this year? Uh, what do I need to, uh, to learn? Uh, particularly now to stay relevant mm. um, as well too, and so. I've been, you know, actually, you know, in the next couple of weeks now, I'll be going through that, that, that self-reflection and it's not anything formal. I don't typically, I don't pull out post-it notes. I, I just have a sketchbook. I'll put the post-it notes usually separate and I'll put it in that sketchbook and things like mm-hmm. that and kind of formalize a plan. And, uh, part of that planning is, you know, what part of this is career related, uh, and then what part of it is, uh, personal, you know, yeah. as well too and then there's that middle ground of like just how can Owen have fun <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, a lot of it is you know just a part of you know I, I used to serve as the president of AIGA um, and I just stepped down this year this past summer and so you know fun wasn't even on my, my calendar because when I wasn't working at IBM I was working as a president of a 500, 600 member chapter. Yeah. So I was more worried about and my members getting what they getting then. So it was like two jobs. And teaching. And teaching potentially as well yeah. too. So it's like, shoot me now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so now I have, I'm no longer president. I have fun time. So yeah. now it's, <laughs> I, I need to like think about, you know, what work do I want to make? personal work do I want to make for myself and uh, I have time for that you know I haven't had time for that for like four or five years Mm -hmm. Um, and so I have a project here a project there that I would do but now I actually like I've been invited to to do a show and I was like oh I need work (laughs) Uh, so I need to like start thinking about you know what type of work do I want to do what am Mm. I passionate about Um, you know like what is something that um, I can do to like fill in that fun time. And for some people it's like, you want to make work. And it's like, that's fun to me. Yeah. Uh, I love doing this for stuff yourself for myself. Yeah, exactly. It, it's fun. You know, I love doing my work at IBM, but I, I love also making work as well too. And all of my work is typically, um, screen printing, 
um, mm-hmm. letter pressing or um, some type of hands-on thing. Usually something that's a mass production process, but it's hands-on mass production. Yeah. Um, and I, I really enjoy it. That's like that, you know, designer side of me of wanting like figure out how can I make this happen so that I can screen print it or so I can like letter press it and figuring out that process then as well too for some people it's like probably stresses them out for me it's like I want to like figure this out (laughs) and that's fun for me that's cool congratulations on the show is that something you can share or is it formally Uh, it's not formal yet so I can't share it yet okay cool well I really appreciate your time um, and thanks for everything you shared and uh, uh, let's look forward to the next year I'm definitely going to take your advice and sit down and reflect and uh, on this year and figure out what I want to do next year I mean it's something I've been wanting to do a little bit but I feel like inspired to be a little bit more rigorous about it and uh, thanks for that oh thank you thank you for having me uh, it's been great great sharing <laughs> yeah cool thanks cool Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.